I'm going to read Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And I'm going to say something that might not make sense to you guys. I'm going to try and teach it to you in a minute. This next church, this is the church of Philadelphia. And in a prophetical way, this church and the next church, Laodicea, represent our church. We've learned from every church we've studied thus far, five in number. Each of the churches in the book of Revelation prophetically represent an age, a phase, and an era of church history as we know it for the past 2,000 years. The church at Smyrna was the persecuted church right around the year 300. The Ephesus church was the apostolic or the Acts church, ages 30 to 100 AD, and so on and so forth. The church at Thyatira, the church at Pergamos, the church at Sardis, all represented a time period, historically, prophetically then in history for us. And now as we get to these last two churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea, they prophetically represent the time period of the 1800s till current day, to right now. And so as we read this letter, it's a letter to them then, the church at Philadelphia. It's a letter to the churches of Revelation. It's a letter to all Christians individually, but this is where it gets exciting. It's actually prophetically a letter to exactly how Jesus Christ sees South Beach Church. Now, unfortunately, when we read the church at Laodicea next week, it also is exactly how Jesus can see the church at South Beach. This is our choice. Which church will we self-identify with prophetically? The Laodicean church, next week we'll study that. That's the lukewarm church, the church that had gone halfway, and some call it the apostate church that had gone away from their first love. Or this church, the faithful church. Philadelphia, as you all know, means brotherly love. And this church was so full of love that they decided to actually, listen, love people that were in their city and beyond their city in Jesus' name. They were evangelicals. They were evangelists. They were those desiring to get the salt out of the shaker. They were the ones that God, before the tribulation would begin in, in our day, before the end of the world, God would pour out his spirit upon the church. And so as we just went through those announcements, and I'll tell you a little bit about even today, September 1st, what that means to me and what Jesus is doing even now. So would you read with me verse 7 through 13? We'll pray. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. Have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, it's in Jesus' name now that we humble ourselves as we gather to study your word for the next 25 minutes, next 30 minutes. We ask God that you'd be honored in our doing so and that we would be blessed, equipped, Lord, and edified. That we would be that Philadelphia church that you have set an open door before that you would use, Lord, even though we just have a little bit of strength, that's enough. And I pray, God, in Jesus' name, that you would take, Lord, the announcements we just went over, all the missions things and the kiddo programs, Lord, and the night of worship and CR and youth group, all the things that are happening, Lord. Would you bless all those events, Lord? Bless all those ministries, produce fruit. May this church, Lord, be guilty of holding fast and not losing our crown of standing, Lord, and not denying your name, of using and utilizing your word in our own lives. So even now, Lord, with thanksgiving, we invite you here during this study as we apply, Lord, prophetically, these truths and these admonitions from the church of Philadelphia to our own lives. We thank you, Jesus. We pray that you would do work. Even right now, I feel prompted, Lord, if there be someone here that needs a miracle, needs an altar, a change, needs something in their mind or their body or their spirit. Lord, would you be generous today? Would you give and grant, Lord, mercy? Would you give that which we do not deserve, Lord? Would you grant mercy to those who need mercy today? Would you give to us, Lord, your goodness and your grace? Heal us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, as we get into today's uh, story, I mentioned last week uh, to most of you that it was August 29th, 2010. My family and I woke up in Ashland, Oregon, and it was about 85 degrees, as it should be on August 29th. And we packed up our rider truck and jumped in the vehicle. Noah sat on my right side in the rider truck, and my wife with Nehemiah got in our Subaru Legacy, and we began our journey here to Newport, Oregon. And as we got here on August 29th, it was 80 and 85, and then we hit you know Corvallis, and it was 81, and then you hit Philomath, and it's 76, and then you're cruising through, and you get to Toledo, and it's negative 20, you know, and... And as we headed over and crested over and got to Newport, I remember the fog bank was there. It was August 29th. We rolled in, and, and we rented a little condo right down here on the end of 35th Street, August 29th. And it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday. And so I, I didn't come to church that particular Sunday. We just drove right into our house. And the church, South Beach Christian Fellowship at the time, uh, put together a group of people, maybe eight people, to meet us at the condo there. And they unloaded all of our stuff for us. And right next door was Eddie and Katie Townsend. They had rented a condo as well. And, and we began our, our pilgrimage here. And it wasn't until the, the next Sunday, September 5th, which would be the first Sunday in September, that I taught my very first message at South Beach Church nine years ago today. And the church wasn't meeting here. This building was completely gutted. Every Sunday school room was full of trash and debris and chaos, and this was one big open space. The church was meeting at Yaquina View and at the middle school at the time. And I remember as I walked into the middle school there, Sandy Shones greeted me with a big hug and a big smile. Sandy Shones used to own this building. Now the city of Newport owns this building. And, and she greeted me with a hug, and Sandy Jones is in heaven now, and one day will greet me with another hug when I see her. And she said, we're so glad you're here. You're an answer to our prayers. And then she smiled and said, please don't hurt us. <laughs> and she walked away. 
<laughs> I didn't know what I was getting into. Pridefully, I thought she was talking about my preaching style and if I could preach good sermons or not. And so I thought, I'm going to preach good sermons. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to do good sermons. And that's not what she was talking about. She was talking about leadership and caring and shepherding. The church had been through a lot at that time. There was 20, maybe 25 people then. Everyone had been scattered for a number of reasons. And she looked at me and said, don't hurt us. I was 32 years old. And so what we started at that time is teaching through the scriptures. What we did was an Old Testament survey of some of the heroes of the Old Testament, I remember. And we did that for about 10 weeks. And in November of 2010, we started the book of Nehemiah. It was the first book we ever taught through here at the church. You can go on our website and listen to it. And we were in Nehemiah for 17 weeks. And once Nehemiah was done, I realized that the church needed some doctrine. I said, well, let's go to another easy-to-go-through book. Let's go to Romans. And so we jumped into Romans, and for the next year, we're in Romans. And when we were done with Romans, I wanted the church to understand what the church looked like. So we went from Romans backwards to Acts, and after Acts, we went to John. We kept going backwards, and, and once we went to John, we then jumped all the way into the Old Testament, into Jonah, and then into Daniel, and then into Esther. Do you, do you remember these times? And as that was happening, the church actually met that direction. There's a screen there. The stage was over there. This was a parking lot. There was spaces here. And there was a wall there, and at one point, Jim Shones, who used to own this building, Sandy's husband, said, your church is too small. I said, well, we rent from you. What do you want us to do? And he said, you need to get a bid and expand it. Here's $67,000. And so we got a bid, and about $100,000 later, we popped out this portion and added 27 feet and added 125 chairs. There was 175 chairs facing that direction, and we popped it out. And two weeks after we made that faith move that he funded, because okay, I wouldn't have done that on my own. God needed an older man to say, your church is too small, make it better, make it bigger. Yeah. Two Sundays after we moved into our new seating arrangement, 300 chairs was Easter Sunday, and guess how many people showed up to church that day? 300, exactly. And we had chairs for everyone. I thought, where would we have put these people? You know. See, this is the Lord's church, and he's made an open door for us. Within that year, we went to two services, 9 and 11. I remember the first time we had a 9 and 11 option. I was so scared. I told the people, you guys got to pick a service, okay? We've been meeting at 10 for years now. And pick a service. And I figured everyone's going to pick the 9 or everyone's going to pick the 11. And just like Jesus, just like the Lord split the Red Sea for Moses, half came with the 9 and half came with the 11. It was a minor miracle. It was amazing. Within that same next year, less than a year later, we needed to add another service in our 6 p.m., and continue to see the Lord grow us as we taught through the scriptures. 2016, we jumped into the book of Ephesians where we talked about our identity in, in Jesus and who he is. And then when that Bible study ended, we began our pilgrimage through Luke. Remember when we started Luke back in November of 2016 and we took 23 years in the gospel of Luke? Two and a half years, two and a half years. And now we're in Revelation chapter three, and we've been in the book of Revelation for 12 weeks. And today's the nine-year anniversary of when we began. And as we study the book of Philadelphia, here on this day, it's the anniversary. And I see God's faithfulness. And here's the best thing you're gonna hear all day. God is committed to finishing that which he began in you. He's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you, never going to get tired of you, never going to stop until he accomplishes his will. It has nothing to do with your will, nothing to do with your ability. 
here in this church, he says, I see you guys have a little bit of strength. That means you're weak, okay? But I've opened up a door for you because God loves to co-op with people who have just a little bit of strength and maybe even more weakness than their strength because then when it's all said and done, guess who gets the glory? God only. Not a man, not a woman, not an organization. And so God loves to co-op with people in their weaknesses. Now, I don't like weaknesses. I hate them. I don't enjoy being insecure. I don't enjoy being inadequate. I remember about a year ago, I was telling my wife, I was having a moment, and I was sharing with her my inadequacies and my insecurities and my fears and my second guessing and my overwhelmingness and my overarching anxieties. And as I was telling my wife this, she said, those are all really good to hear. I said, what marriage book are you reading? I said, why, why is that good to hear? She goes, because Luke, you come across as very prideful and very arrogant and very confident. And to know that you actually inside her, you're not those things. It helps me to know that God has your heart, that there's a firm foundation, even though I, I come across as a machismo leader, you know, and I try and, and I believe that's my, my gift to the, to the body is strength and courage. But in reality, like Daniel and like Gideon and like Moses and like Joseph and like the leaders that God has chosen to highlight in his scriptures. He says, I am looking for men and women whose hearts are loyal towards me, that I might show myself strong on their behalf. Second Chronicles 16, 9. God is look, he's not looking for perfect people. There aren't any. He's up to his son, Jesus Christ. And as the Lord now scans the audience here and touches our hearts, in the midst of the battle, we study this church at Philadelphia. And he identifies to this church in ways that they needed to hear and be encouraged and ways that we need to be encouraged. Brotherly love. I, I see it in you guys. I see it in me. We're the evangelical church. You probably think that your life in this church is similar to the history of the churches for the last 2,000 years. We're just, this is how church has always been, isn't it? the church has gone through some weird times. And I'm not just talking recently, but historically. Every church in the book of Revelation, I've been teaching you this, gets a letter from Jesus. And those letters were to them specifically, to the churches corporately, to you and I personally, and also to the world prophetically. I've not yet taught you that. So if you're a note taker, write these things down it's not the most important thing you're going to hear all day, but if you're a student, you need to understand this. The church at Ephesus represents a time period between the ages 30 and 100 AD. In other words, they were the church that was successful, but was forgetting slowly but surely their connection with Jesus. Right then, less than 100 years after Jesus was there. The second church we studied was the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church. And that church represents a time period of 100 AD to 300 AD where the church lost millions and millions of lives. The third church we studied represents a time period of 313 to 600. This would be the Roman Catholic Constantine era where the church would adjust and would change. Constantine would do things which we didn't talk about and I didn't find pertinent to our study, but that would be church history as they knew it, which would lead to then the Dark Ages, the corrupt church, ages 600 to 1500. And then Sardis, remember Sardis? We studied this last week, the dead church, the dead church. 
that dead church would represent the Great Reformation, where Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and the boys would get back to the Word of God, and they would get away from this dead religion that had left them nothing, and that they would find themselves reformed, strengthening the things that remain. But in the year 1800, they became so liturgical and so organized that then we found ourselves in the year 1800, just recently, which what I would consider our era, our generation. And in the late 1700s, and in the 1800s, and in the 1900s, and in the 2000s, that's us, began worldwide missions once again, where the church, through men and women, began to return to the scriptures. And listen, Jesus opened up a door for them. And if you study some of the men and women, I'll just give you one. His name was William Carey. William Carey was a shoe cobbler. That is, he made shoes. He worked on soles. <sighs> It'll get better at 11. It'll get better. And as he had two books to his name, as history tells us. He had the Bible, and he had Captain Cook's diaries from his sailings and his adventures. And as he was reading the Bible, the Lord inspired him to get out of the East Coast where he lived and to be sent to India. And he went to his small church and said, I need to go to India. Send me. Missions wasn't a thing back in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. And they decided, let's do it. Let's send him. This guy, William Carey, I can't get too, too into this. This guy, William Carey, was sent to India. And when he got there, he took the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and translated it into one, two, three, four, five, six different languages from front to back. He took the New Testament and translated it into 29 different languages in India. And worldwide missions began to bloom. And D.L. Moody and C.H. Spurgeon and the gang in those days began to take world missions. An open door was set before them. The church at Philadelphia Philadelphia is what we're studying specifically. 2,000 years ago, this church existed in this postal circuit there in modern-day Turkey, and it was used in that day. Philadelphia was actually used, this brotherly love city, in order to be a missions base for Rome where they would send out the Greek and the Roman culture, and everyone would learn about them. That's exactly what this city was for. They had a major inroad that led from Rome all the way to the east of the world, the reason it gets its name, the brotherly love, is because there was actually two brothers that loved each other that lived there and ran the city. They were the pioneers of the city. And when one of the brothers died, the other brother named cities and streets and buildings and minted coins after his brother. And it was so, so infamous, they said, man, phileo is the Greek word for love. And we're going to call this Philadelphia because you guys are so in love with each other. And yet prophetically, Jesus says, that's the church, this church that's supposed to be a missions base, a sending base, a reaching base, a teaching base because of their love. And that's what it's gonna be if you have ears to hear, if you stand firm in my name. The exhortations are very clear to this church. If you take what I've given to you and you let me use you in the way that I wanna use you, did you know that they were doing what the church is supposed to do? We've studied Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, all these churches. The church at Philadelphia, there's only two churches in the entire book of Revelation that don't get corrected or condemned, okay? Smyrna, the church that was getting beat up, a small church that was getting persecuted, so they ended up doing things right because they didn't get all crazy. And this church that actually had an open door for them, everything was going great for them, and God looked at them and said, you're doing it, you're doing it. 
I don't correct you. I don't condemn you. I commend you. Keep going. Keep going. This is the church we want to find ourselves modeled after. Let's study it through quickly. Verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy and he who is true. He who has the key of David and he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Jesus has self-identified himself to each church based on what they need. To the church at Ephesus, he was the one in the lampstands. To the Smyrna church persecuted, he had died and rose again. He knows what it's like. To the Thyatira church, he was the word of God. To the Pergamos church, he was fire eyes and brass feet. To the Sardis church, hopefully you didn't forget this from last week. To the Sardis church, he said, I'm the one with the seven spirits of God, the fullness of God. You know what you need today, church? Sardis church, the dead church, the religious church. You need the spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6. You know what your marriage needs? You know what your parenting needs? You know what your own life needs? The Spirit. Now Jesus looks at this church and he says, I'm the one who's holy and I'm the one who is true and I'm the one who opens doors and shuts doors and I have the key of David. He says a bunch of stuff about himself. This is the only time that Jesus self-identifies as something that he is as opposed to something that he has and something that he does. It, it makes, it's important. He goes, I am holy and I am true. And because I'm holy and true, and this is such a takeaway for some of you who are here today wanting to be the best Christian you can be, because he's holy and because he's true, you know what happens? Doors open that need to open and doors shut that need to shut. You want to be the most successful Christian, most powerful Christian, most fulfilled Christian? Okay? Pursue holiness. Walk in truth. And doors will open for you. Your life will be full as you live on purpose for Jesus. The Bible says in Matthew chapter five, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. People are always trying to figure out how to get ahead in life, how to open doors, how to make things happen. And I tell you what, the Bible says this, when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are made to be at peace with him. Does it come again? You mean when I seek first God, when I make sure I'm holy and true, not legalistic and weird, okay? That's not what I mean by holy, okay? Just so you guys know. But when I'm walking in tandem with the Lord and I see the things of this world and say no to them and, and I see the inadequacies and inconsistencies in my own flesh. Have you guys ever seen some of that in your own heart? It's easy to see it in the world or in other people and blame them, but man, oh man, oh, some of it just is still in me. And when you see that and you bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, help me, I promise you, God will open doors that no one can open. He will use your life. It's not that hard. Walk with him. Choose to trust him. And if you're not doing that today, if you're not walking in holiness, you're not walking in truth, you're all messed up, okay, guess what? God's patient. He'll, he'll, he'll figure out a way for you. Remember when Moses was called by God to be the deliverer of the children of Israel? And he was walking in unholiness and untruth and he did it his own way and it, he had to go to the backside of the desert for 40 years and get taught a lesson or two. And God said, you ready yet? Here's the good news. God's so patient with you. If you've been acting a fool, if you're, if you're not where you need to be right now, okay, in Jesus' name, we're going to take communion in about 12 minutes. And you can say, Lord, make me that Philadelphia church. Forgive, Make an open door for me, Jesus. Make my life pleasing to you. 
He has the keys of David. He opens and he shuts and nobody gets in the way. Look at verse eight. He says, I know your works and see I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it for you have a little strength. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus sees their works. He said this to every church. He knows what they do, what they don't do. And he says to them and he declares, I've opened the door. Kevin Caseta sent our group text uh, at the church here a message this week. He said, guys, it was so cool. I was working for my dad doing landscaping and at this guy's house. He might even be here today. I'm not sure. And he said, and my dad told this, guy, this man that I was a, a, a missionary. And, and so I was cutting his weeds and, you know, pruning his bushes and stuff. And he came over to me and said, can you actually pray for me? And so my areas in my life that I'm going through right now. And Kevin did that. And then Kevin invited him to church. He said, I'll be there. It's going to be awesome. And and Kevin was so excited that God's using him here locally. Sure, he went to Taiwan and it was used. And the idea, folks, is how can you live your best life now is you ask God, open a door for me. I want you to hear this because we use that language in Christianity, don't we? And God just opened a door for me. And, and I believe that happens in a lot of ways. Maybe you're looking for a job. Maybe you're looking for reprieve or a spouse. Or The Lord's opened up a door and it's, horizontal it happens it happens your life will end one day and the real open door you want is the open door that will allow you to do things that will last forever and ever and ever and ever and as consumers we're christian consumers we're just we're really messed up we tend to say lord i need you to do this for me he knows your needs he loves you he loves to bless you. He loves you. But he opens doors for you, listen, not just for you. Your open doors. The blessing of marriage, the blessing of singleness, the blessing of kids, the blessing of whatever, whatever you're blessed with. He's done that for you. He's given to you resources, experiences, gifts, why? So you would have brotherly love. So you would share that with others. And we get it so twisted. We want our best life now. Careful. Careful. Our best life isn't about us, but it's about others. He identifies two, what we would call enemies. Number one is our weakness. Can I just let you guys know your weakness, your mistakes, your fears, your bumps, your bruises make you real, okay? Don't be ashamed. I already had somebody come up to me this morning and confess a, a mistake to me. And it was with great privilege I was able to pray for them. So we, we, can, we can get through this. This weakness, God's gonna work that out. God's gonna use this to advance his kingdom in your heart first and in the hearts of the people around you. Don't let your weakness stop you. As a matter of fact, it is your weakness that allows God to use you. In our weakness, his strength is made perfect. Paul told the Corinthian church, when I showed up to you, I was in fear and trembling and little words in order that my whole focus could be on Jesus Christ and him crucified.
He also gives us another enemy, verse 9. He says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I've loved you. Stop right there, eyes up here. In that day, there were a sect of Jews that weren't really spiritual Jews. They might have been heritage Jews, born Jews, but they weren't living for the kingdom of God, and they were attacking the church. They were doing foolish things. Okay, it's easy to identify throughout history. Every group has a people group within their group that aren't real. Have you seen this before? Let me go ahead and apply that to our day. Not everyone who says they are a Christian are a Christian, right? Have you seen this? Have you seen Hollywood before? Christian Hollywood people, you know? Have you, have you seen other churches? They say they're Christian. They're not Christian. They're not. People often attack the church and they say, what about the Crusades? What about when the Christians killed and pillaged and maimed the whole world? <laughs> they weren't Christians. When they had crosses on their shields. I don't care. They weren't Christians. That's not, they were lying. And there are people today, and God knows. That's the good news, God knows. God knows who's real and who's not real. Now for me, that's great news. I can be alleviated for some of you who are faking it. Okay, he knows. Don't fake it. Be a Christian. Verse 10, he exhorts them. He says, because you've kept my command to persevere, or because you've persevered in my commands, depends on your translation, because if you've persevered in my word, is what it literally reads. Because you've persevered in my word, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell in the earth. Stop right there. There's a whole bunch in verse 10 we're not going to do today. We're not going to do it today. Okay, most commentators, I'm one of them, most Bible students believe, and I'm one of them, that this speaks to God telling that last day church that when the trial, the test that's going to come upon the whole world happens, they will be protected and removed from it. We call it the rapture of the church. We're going to talk about that in depth as time allows Okay, this is one of the main verses that says, if you guys just stick to my word, don't deny my name, there will be a test coming for the whole world. The whole world. Not just Philadelphia. The whole world. And you who are faithful, you will be protected. We'll talk about the pre-trib, post-trib, mid-tribulation, rapture theories, and all of the different thoughts that go into those. The point is, because we have persevered in his word. Let me just say one thing that does make sense, though, today. There will be a test that comes upon the world attesting seven-year tribulation period those who pass the test before the seven-year tribulation period won't go through the tribulation period because you've already passed the test and the test is did you keep his word during that seven-year tribulation period there will be those through that test who choose to keep his word okay and they will be saved through the tribulation they will lose their heads they will lose their lives it will be bloody it'll be brutal there are those though who today can say, I want to pass that test right now. Can I take the test? What's the test? I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in his word. I'm going to stand firm in the year 2019, September 1st. And I'm going to trust you, Lord, to open up a door within our own county, within my own time. And maybe even just a smidge like William Carey. Just a smidge. William Carey. Can you imagine learning over 30 different languages? Not just so you could order some tacos and find the baño, but so you could translate the scriptures so people don't die and go to hell? I can't imagine. 
Why are we here? What are we doing? What's our test? How's your life going? Jesus says in verse 11 to this church, Behold, I am coming quickly. The word there could be translated suddenly. The return of Christ. It's not quickly. He said this 2,000 years ago, so it's obviously not soon. That's not what he meant then. But when it happens, suddenly. We talked about this in our previous studies. How, how do we know the end is coming? You read the signs. The closer you get to Seattle, there are more signs stating you're coming close to Seattle. There are no signs in Newport that you're near Seattle. We're not close enough. As we get closer to the day of the Lord's return, the signs increase. Israel becomes a nation. Travel increases. Knowledge to and fro. Technology. The world gets darker and weirder, just as it says. Everything. So what should we be doing? Oh, he's, he's coming quickly. Last night I was meditating on this verse, and I was like, do it. You know, now, before the fourth quarter and the Ducks lose. didn't happen. <laughs> Verse 11. Man, we just don't have enough time to get into this. It's so good, though. Come back to the six tonight. We're going to do it right. <laughs> Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. In the scriptures, when we die and go to heaven, the Bible speaks of, I believe, six different crowns that believers will receive. Each crown has a specific connection to the lives we've lived. This one, I believe, speaks of the crown of the people that we have led to Jesus, the people that we have ministered to, the people you've prayed for and loved on. What's he say to the church at Philadelphia, the faithful church? Hold fast, guys. Don't let anybody take your crown. The people you've been ministering to in Sunday school, your family members, your neighbors, the, people, the ministry teams, the things that you have done, don't let anybody take that from you. In other words, don't give up any ground. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him my name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Stop right there, eyes up here, a few thoughts. He says the people that overcome, they're gonna get three names. My God's name, the city of Jerusalem's new name, and a name no one knows. There's a lot in a name, isn't there? A good name, a powerful name, an influential name, I went to the Toledo Jamboree with the Newport Cubs and the Toledo Boomers and the Taft Tigers and the other team I didn't recognize. What were they called? Kennedy. Where's Kennedy even at? No one knows. But I was at the Jamboree and I was trying to identify players. Kyle was there and, and there were some other players and I, I just could, I didn't, there was no names on the back of their na jerseys. I was like, uh, numbers? I don't know, no names. In heaven, you're gonna be recognized, okay? Deal with it. Some of you don't like people to know who you are. <laughs> you know, I had this thought last night. I was like, man, when I'm in heaven, everyone's going to know who I am. Okay, that was, that was a fleeting thought. The next thought was more grand. It was so cool. Actually makes me excited. That when I'm in heaven, I'm going to know who you are, really. I'm going to see your name, and I'm going to know who you are. I'm going to know your exploits for the king. And I, get, I think we'll have full knowledge of each other. And I'll see you in heaven. And I'll see everything that God did in your life. And your whole life will be laid open before me. All the gold and precious stones and jewels and everything you've ever done. And it's going to be my joy to just see you and know everything that God did in your life. It's going to be overwhelming. 
I just told you about William Carey. Somebody didn't even know he existed, born in the year 1700 and died in the year 1800. We just hear about him, what he did, what? You're gonna see him and know everything he's ever done, all the good stuff, you wanna know the bad stuff? Can you imagine the joy of being recognized? That's fine, okay? Of recognizing what every man and woman has done. I'm pretty well aware of the history of this church. What I've done, I gave you the best timeline I could. But I get to know you guys in heaven. Everything you've ever done. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm gonna have Ryan or Marty come up and lead us in communion. We get to celebrate the Lord at the table. Let me ask you a few questions, though. What are you doing with your life? Let me tell you what your life exists for. This isn't just you, this is everybody, and there's a lot of people in the world blowing it. Your entire life exists to bring people closer to Jesus. Your entire life. Because if you don't know Jesus, you don't have eternity with him. You can bring water to nations that don't have water. That's good. But they need Jesus. You can provide a roof over your family's heads. And, and you can volunteer in schools and educate. You can do things. And you should. It's great joy. My questions to you are this. How's your heart towards the ministry of Jesus Christ? He's set before us an open door here in Lincoln County. Did you know we're not going to get arrested for preaching Jesus? Not yet. 53 countries in our world will arrest you and prosecute you for preaching Jesus. 53 countries in America. It's illegal. God has opened up a door for us. What has he given you? Do you pray for this church? Do you give financially? Do you pray for the gospel to go out? Does your heart beat for the life groups that are about to start and the things we're doing? As I mentioned earlier, if it doesn't, if you're distracted, man, I get it. I, I do. You can pray and repent even right now. Say, Lord, give me that Philadelphia heart that would drive us to do crazy things. This Friday as we worship, it's crazy. It's a crazy thing. I talk with Pastor Jason Santoni all the time. We talk about doing crazy stuff. He's kind of crazy and so am I, so we like each other. He calls me a pusher. He said, you're a pusher. You just, you push, you push. And I said, you're a pusher too, bro. Takes one to know one. And we text each other crazy ideas. We say stuff like this. One of these days we should rent the high school, the outdoor, the, the football field. And we should fill the entire football field with just events and food and fun and pack the stadium out and preach the gospel. We should do that. This next one, we should do that. We got ideas. Just, right, what can we do? Oh, we should have a worship night. We should get together. We should combine church. We should get crazy. We should, what should we do? When William Carey went to his church governing board and said, I want to go to India. Nobody's doing that. I know. It needs to be done. I guarantee you when we get to heaven, William Carey won't be sitting at a table all alone full of regrets for the great attempts that he took. One of his quotes is, do great things for God. Expect great things from God. 
to on the ninth anniversary of South Beach Church as we take communion. Lord, we thank you that this is all you and that you're all good and that that goodness is demonstrated, proven in your death, burial, and resurrection. That the church isn't about strategies and buildings and ministries, but that all of that flows, Lord, from the broken body of our Savior. The greatest need of humanity. And Lord, I'll be the first to repent of being aloof, selfish, scared, sinful, prideful. Lord, we're going to die. But before then, you've given us an open door. pray for my brothers and my sister here today that they would choose to walk through that door. Whatever gift you've given to them, whatever talent, whatever resource, whatever spiritual gift, Lord, we'd use it for you. May it just start with our lives. Just saying, Lord, don't just save my soul. Take my life. Use it for your glory. Use it for your purposes. Guys, if you're here right now and you would like to just say, Lord, take whatever I have. Take it. It's all yours. Take my life. Take everything. Would you just raise up your hand to the Lord? Just say, Lord, I give you my life. You've opened a door before me. Help me to run my business to your glory. Help me to, help me to use my life and my experiences for your glory. Help me to be an encourager. Lord, give me brotherly love. All of this has to have love. Without love, it's dead. Lord, take our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Even so, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.